The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is the Straight Up Breakdown Podcast. Exclusively on the Herd App Media Network. Tell it to me straight up. Hello and welcome into the Straight Up Breakdown Podcast, proudly part of the Hale Varsity Network. I am Greg Smith. You're running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Is that still something that people say, uh, friend? Uh, today, I am joined uh, by a special guest, friend of the pod, who I think is the has the honor of being the first like two time guest of the pod. As I see him on video, he's shaking his head. I think he likes it. Uh, Hill Varsity staff writer Derek Peterson. Derek, welcome back in. How are you? I think I was also the first guest on your pod. Period. I think maybe. Um, so breaking records here. Yeah, I think you were the, the first one. So look at you. You're, you're a, tra- a trailblazer all over the place. That's what I've done my entire life, man. What can I say? <laughs> I mean, th- th- I feel like that needs to go on a plaque somewhere. Winner's um, going to win. <laughs> that's right. I'm like uh, the Clippers and the Suns. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get to that, I'm sure, at some point later. Um, but, man, it, it's been it, it's been a fun week. Like the NBA playoffs have started back up, or a fun couple weeks. The NBA playoffs have started back up. Um, we're starting to get to some of those like good storylines that happen from that. The White Sox are very good right now. So you can have another one of my teams in spite of their manager who they hate. Um, as you heard last week with um, I guess last week, Sparky Pfeiffer put Tony LaRusso on blast. I was totally happy with that. Um, but each week we start the show off with a segment called coach speak, where we go over something that a coach player or a talking head said, and then we give you the straight up breakdown of what they meant. Coach, speak to real talk. Now this time it's a, it's a little bit different. It's not actually a quote, it is an email um, that people that were participating in the Husker 101, the Inside Husker Football Camp um, got sent. And I'll read it to you because it's pretty short. It said, Dear Inside Husker Football Registrants, we wanted to give you a heads up that the interest in this event has been low this year. We plan to leave registration open for another week, but we are going to need to see an uptick in interest to keep the date on our schedule. Our plan is to give you an update at least two weeks out from the event. In the event that we do cancel, you will receive a full refund. Um, then talks about how they'll also ship the gifts that they plan uh, to give them uh, to them still. Hopefully they get to keep the event. Uh, but they didn't want to blindside anyone in case they had to cancel. So all that being said, Derek, what does that mean? Well, first, can you just explain for everyone what that is, what that Husker 101 thing is? Yeah, so it's essentially a chunk of time where fans can sign up to come to, I think it's at Hawks. I think, I think it was at Hawks. Um, and you can then be explained Husker football and different strategy and stuff by the coaching staff. It's basically your opportunity as a fan to be able to go in and spend some time with the coaching staff. It's not one-on-one, it's them on like a larger group. Um, and it, it's, it's from what I've heard, it's a pretty neat event, um, but there just hasn't been a ton of buzz around it this year. And I have some theories as to why that is um, that we'll get to in a second, but that that's essentially what, um, the program is. Yeah, it costs $155 to get in um, to, to register. And it's, 
what june 15th um like like with several things i think we're going to talk about just just attendance for various things i think there are a couple things that are going to be at play um i think the main narrative that's probably going to be spun by like let's say social media is that people aren't interested in hearing nebraska coaches talk about football because they don't think nebraska coaches know football um i think that's probably going to be the narrative that gets spun uh probably more often than not um particularly by people who are not Nebraska fans. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. There might be, there might be like one or 2% of the people that are looking at that and saying, no, I don't want to go or thinking that. Um, I think, you know, part of it is just, it's, things are starting to open back up again. And, you know, for people that are maybe football coaches at lower levels that would want to go to something like that, like they're doing their own things, trying to make up time for people that uh, would take that as just a fun afternoon, an opportunity to go to something, they might think, um, I can do this or I can like go somewhere cooler now that everything is open again. So I'm going to do that instead of sitting inside, uh, Hawks for, was it look like, like six hours or something like that? I think it's like a six or seven hour day on June 15th. Um, I, I like, and this is not hot takey, so I apologize, but that I, that my read on it was just that there's just a lot of stuff going on. A lot of people trying to make up for lost time with everything opening back up again. Um, I think the price point is probably going to deter some people. I think there are going to be some, a small percentage, a small percentage of people who say, yeah, I just don't, I don't really want to hear it. I've been turned off by the last three years of Nebraska football that I just don't really want to hear it. I will spend my day elsewhere. I think there's a small percentage of people that will say that, but I think it's just a lot of, there's a lot of other stuff going on. Like, I don't, like, I don't think it's anything terrible that, that uh, interest in this is low. Am I in yeah. the minority for thinking that? No, I actually think that you nailed it, kind of stole the words out of my mouth there. I'm a little mad at you for having such a great point, um, but that's why I have a esteemed guest on here, right? Um, I think that, no, I think you're right, though. I think that there are several things at play beyond the knee-jerk reaction, in this case, of people just have a lower interest in Husker football, right? I don't think that, well, I think that that is true a little bit. Um, And like you said, that one or 2% of people that may feel that way. I also do think that it might just be too soon for this type of event to get huge traction, right? I think it's totally different to say, hey, we're going to open up a spring football practice and we'll have, you know, X number of seats or tickets available for that. um, And we'll see. And everybody basically shows up for that. That is, is the max allowed, right? Um, I think that that's different because that was something where people were itching to get back outside. They were itching to see the team in person and see them play. And there were a number of players um, that no one had really seen. Um, And so that was exciting. I think that it's another thing to say, hey, the spring game is back and we're going to have fans and for people to get excited about that and make that what it was. Right. I think that once we get to the point that we are now, where, like you said, people have some options on what they can go and do with their time now as things continue to open up. I feel like every day um, things continue to open up more and more. And so there, if you just sit down as a Husker fan and make a list of the things that you've been maybe waiting to do since you've kind of been in quarantine for this last, well, what, 14, 15 months, like, 
I don't know how highly this particular event ranks on that schedule. Like, I don't know that you were sitting around for the last year thinking, man, I can't wait until Inside Husker 101 comes back. And the second I can go to that, I'm going to go do it. Like, I just don't think that that was the case for most people. I'm sure it's also a super informative event. I've obviously never been to it. But one other point that I would want to make that I think uh, gets sort of glossed over and it was reinforced with the spring game. Spring game attendance was not capacity. They didn't. They didn't sell out. They didn't sell out the the ticket allotment for the spring game. Just because things are opening, does not mean every single person has completely flipped that switch in their mind and said, "I'm going to go do all of this stuff now because it's open." Like people are still wearing masks at Target, even though you're not. You're. It's not required anymore. Right. I know like my mom like made the comment a couple weeks ago. She's like, I might just wear a mask like whenever I go out places or like in the flu season, I might just wear, cause she works in elementary school. She works in a low income area at an elementary school. And she was like, maybe when it's flu season, I'll just wear a mask all the time. Like, I think there are also some people and I'm fully vaccinated, but I've, I haven't gone to target yet. I might wear a mask just the first couple of times, just to see what it's like, get the lay of the land before I venture out completely naked or for all intents and purposes, that's what it'll feel like. Um, So I think that's also part of it too, is like, just because stuff is open doesn't mean 100% of people that can attend things are going to choose to attend things right away. I think that that is a tremendous point. And I think that that is something that's been completely glossed over with the excitement to get these, some of these things back. It's been just assumed that the second that things open up, 110% of people are going to come to these things, right? And that people will be beating down the door for all of these events. And I think whether it's the options that you now have and maybe you want to go do something else or just I think that little bit of hesitancy that people still have around some of these events. And it doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that like, 80 to 90 percent of Nebraskans feel that way but there's enough of them to feel that way to where these events are not selling out like I'll be curious what happens with say baseball attendance um, going forward now when we get to the CWS I think that things will be a little bit different then because you still have a little bit more time every every, like I think every time that we have more time pass and more as more time goes more people will get closer to coming to these things and you're going to have capacity like I fully expect that by the time we get to football season like Memorial Stadium will be packed. And I don't think that that will be an issue. But I think in the interim, I think you're going to continue to have kind of this lingering effect. And I think that there, I think there's honestly going to be stuff written about that. And that's going to be explored in various media outlets, like over this next little bit of time of like, we all thought that folks were going to be rushing back to do all of this stuff. And they're basically telling us without telling us that eh, maybe not. Yeah. And I mean, I th- you can point to the Garth Brooks concert in mid-August and say, well, that sold out immediately. If that Garth Brooks concert was scheduled for June 15th, maybe it doesn't sell out immediately. Maybe the demand right. like it's still it's still a ways away. Um, and there's still a lot of time for I mean, what, that's two or three months away. I mean, there's there's a lot of time for a, a good number of people to still get vaccinated or maybe still feel safer um, or a little bit more comfortable going out or whatever. So like when you were putting it in percentages, like if like, let's say five to 10, 10% of the demographic that you're kind of targeting this, this Husker 101 thing for five to 10% of people are like, yeah, I'm not, not really comfortable going to something like that, particularly with it being inside still. Um, 
five to 10%. And then another five to 10% is like, Hey, uh, yeah, we'd rather take our kids to the lake or like, we'd rather like go somewhere else. So, I mean, you could get to where, you know, a quarter of your demographic, your target demographic is just not interested at all, regardless of what it is or what the price point is. And then on top of that, you have the people that would be like, yeah, I want to go spend this afternoon there. And the people that would be like, yeah, I want to spend $155 on this. I mean, it's natural that interest is going to be a a little lower just because you're starting from a smaller pool of people. So I think it's going to get twisted probably by... um, like let's say Iowa fans is saying that nobody cares about what Nebraska football coaches have to say about football, but I don't think that's the case. No, I don't, I don't either. Um, and I, but I do think that this, I don't know how to put this. Like it, it, we're starting to see um, just some different things mount and point in the direction that interest might still be a little bit lower. So even though we're saying, Hey, in this particular case, I don't think that what's happening with this inside Husker football event is like, a big alarm bell. I don't think that it's that. I think that it's too far to say that that's the single thing that tells you that people's interest is low. But I do think that there are some other things to kind of keep an eye on, I think is is the fair way to put it. Like, I'm curious on what happens with season ticket renewals. Like, is it going to be a struggle for Nebraska or will it come down to the wire to get season ticket renewals back to where they need to be and then have the tickets sold to continue the sellout streak? Do you think that that's going to be an issue coming off of not only the pandemic year, but also what Nebraska is working on now four straight losing seasons? And I think that that's where that really kind of comes into that. Is that going to start to be an issue that creeps in? Let's break that down. I mean, maybe I like I don't like I just again, like I don't think you can you can take out the financial piece of the equation. I mean, we just went through a pandemic. A lot of people are hurting. Going to a football game is an expensive experience. Going to a football game uh, at one of like the, the the premier institutions in college football is an expensive experience. And we just spent a, a year, a year and a half, whatever, watching sports at home. And Nebraska's, as Bill Moose said when he went on Sports Nightly a little bit ago, Nebraska's not going to sell alcohol at Memorial Stadium. It's not on the table right now. So you can watch from home and put your money that would normally go towards tickets and parking and all the other stuff and concessions and all that stuff. You just put it towards beer and then pocket the rest of it and put it on like a UFC fight or something later in the night and be happy. So I think like, I mean, attendance numbers were trending down just because everybody is, is, or not everybody, more people are staying home because the experience at home is it's not a bad one. Um, I don't, I, I would, I would push back on the the notion that interest is, is a little bit lower. I don't think interest is lower. I think people are just in a, in a state where they're like, I don't care about the talk right now in May or June. All I care about is what happens on the field on August 28th and nothing I get right now is going to change that. And so I don't think Nebraska is going to have a problem selling out Memorial Stadium for its first home game of the season. If it's 100% capacity, I don't think Nebraska is going to have a problem selling it out. I don't think the sellout streak is in jeopardy. It, I mean, if we get to like November 6th and Ohio State is in town and Nebraska has won like one or two games, then yeah, it's going to be a real problem selling it out because then you have a real problem with the football program. But I don't think we're necessarily at that point yet. And I still think interest in the football team is high enough to where I, I think consternation about season ticket renewal is, is it, if it's, if it's fueled by, 
well, the team hasn't been very good. I think that's misplaced. If it's fueled by, well, we just came out of a pandemic and people don't have a lot of disposable income right now or a lot of money sitting around to put towards play things like that is one thing. But I don't think interest in the football team is a is a problem right now. You know why I actually agree with you um, that interest in the team is not not necessarily low and as low as some people would have you believe on social media. And I do think that a lot of this is fueled by the loud voices on social media that would tell you that they're disinterested in Husker football. Um, so they believe that everyone is, and I don't think that that's the case, but the way that, you know, is I'll go back to what we were ta- started to talk about a little bit earlier, which is that open practice in the spring, like there was a high interest I thought in coverage of that event. And I think the reason why is something that you hit on. It's because that was actually us being able to tell people or also people, fans being able to go and see it, what the team actually looks like, yeah. right? And I thought that people were really excited for that and they were really curious on what the observations and stuff were from that particular practice. Now, the spring game is a whole different thing because I also th- I think that people have really smartened up to what the spring game is and is not, right? And I think that like what it is as far as actual football evaluation is not all that great. It's just kind of an event. And for this year alone, it was its own special deal because yeah, for the first the fir- fans could get in there. For in the first time in, in the first half of that game was dancing, basically. That's all right. it was. Right. So... And so, yeah, and so I think that people understand fully what the deal is with that. And I think I actually like that. I like that the fans have gotten that. Plus, I think that, you know, like you said, with the, with the thud, as you see me putting the air quotes up, like that really took the wind out of the sails of that um, as well. And so we'll see. I don't think that I don't I think that once the season actually hits or once we get to maybe I wouldn't even say once the season hits, once we get to like August, mid-August even, where you really start to get honed in on the depth chart and you start to say, hey, the storylines are starting to come back. I think it's going to be a flood of people trying to get information on what's happening because the other like the thing that continues to come up about this particular program and this team that you and I have talked about several times is, is pick a position group and you could say, I just don't know. Right. And so there will, because of that, I think there'll end up being a lot of interest in a lot of different things once we get closer to the season. But I think that so many people, and I think rightfully so, are just beyond the whole like I, I, the PR of the off season yeah. versus just wanting to see it when we get to some actual games or leading up to games. Yeah. I, th- I think they're tired of it. And, and two, like, um, Moose said, I think the number was like 90%. They're above 90% for season ticket renewal rate. That's good. That's not yeah. bad. That's not anything to, to raise alarm bells about. That's, I think that's fine. Um, and, you know, just, just to say one more thing, we could, they, they could get to the homecoming game on October 2nd against Northwestern and they could be four and one. Right. And, and like at, at that point, there will be no issues getting people inside Memorial stadium. Like you're talking about October for once, we're that far removed from stuff being limited stuff, being shut down the, the sort of the pandemic protocol that we've been in talking about October. And then two, you're talking about, you know, a team that's, that is pretty exciting. They, they could have people beating down the door. So 
uh, if we make too much out of like, well, they can't get to, I think 247 said it was like they were at 96% renewal rate two years ago or something like that. So if it's like they get to like 93 and they can't get to 96 and people make a big deal out of that 3% and then we get to October and it's like, yeah, there are scalpers reselling tickets on StubHub for, you know, 200% over what it cost <laughs> originally. Like it was just be like, okay, yeah, that was, that was fun off season fodder. Right. Yeah. And, and that definitely could be the case. And it's, it is one of those things where this is these things, these storylines that we're talking about will either be, oh, those were just off season things that popped up um, and the team went out and proved people wrong or really dismissed that. Or it'll be we'll look back and say, well, this was the start of something. Right. It'll either be, it'll be one of those two things. Um, but shifting gears, but kind of staying in the same lane. Um, last week, uh, some of the more recognizable college football voices that are over at CBS Sports um, got together and ranked the 65 Power 5 college football coaches, uh, kind of including Notre Dame's Brian Kelly entering the 2021 season. Um, Scott Frost was ranked at number 47. That's five spots behind newly hired Illinois head coach Brett Bielema and so and 13 spots behind Rutgers head coach Greg Schiano. There are the... <laughs> Big Ten coaches, and, and I'm going to read this off because people have got to hear this. The Big Ten coaches, and Derek had a, a good piece on this over on the site, um, said that Ryan Day um, was fourth in the country, Pat Fitzgerald nine, James Franklin 13, Kirk Ferentz 17, Paul Christ 18, Tom Allen 20, Harbaugh was 23rd, P.J. Fleck 25th, Shiano 34th, Bielema 42nd, then Frost at 47. Brom at 53, Mel Tucker at 57, and Mike Loxley at 61 was the lowest-ranked Big Ten coach. Um, I, I, my initial thought, before I get to your thoughts on this, my initial thought in seeing this list, it confirmed something that I feel like we've talked about as a staff before, in that the Big Ten is a meat grinder, not when it comes to schools, like, but just the level of coaching that's in this league. And it was not like this all the time. Like, it was not when, like, when Bo Pelini um, was in the league and they were winning nine, ten games, um, and I'm not taking anything away from them at all because I think that they were underappreciated, and I know that you share that, that thought. They were, um, yep. They, they were. Um, I don't think that the coaching was this deep. This is a really, really good crop of coaches that is in this league and I guess that was just kind of my first big like shining takeaway from seeing this is that boy it's tough on a weekly basis to out scheme your opponent yeah I mean just look at the top 25 a third of the top 25 is big 10 coaches yeah from one conference and and I didn't list out the SEC coaches but I would assume the same or a larger percentage of uh, the top 25 was SEC coaches. So everybody talks about, well, it's the SEC and then everyone else. No, I mean, the SEC has a lot of talent, but it's uh, the big 10 is right there. And eight of the top 25. And, and this is, this is one outlet. It's just CBS sports. It was four guys that did it. Um, So I, you know, take it with a grain of salt. It's not gospel. But still, I, w- I wouldn't have, I mean, I would have had all, all eight of those guys that are in the top 25. I would have had those guys in my top 25 too. Um, maybe a different order, but I mean, Jim Harbaugh is still a top 25 coach at the power five ranks, I think, you know, regardless yeah, of what you feel so. about what he's, he's produced. He's lower in the top 25, but he's still up there. Um, the, and, and two, 
when people talk about the Big Ten, it's always, and this was kind of what I wrote in my piece, it's always like, yeah, there's the Big Ten East, and then there's like whatever they're doing over there in the Big Ten West. Like the Big Ten West is often relegated in conversations about like college football strength. And four of those eight Big Ten coaches in the top 25 were from the East, which means that four of them, an equal number, were from the West. Four of the seven programs in the Big Ten West have a coach in the top 25 amongst the, the, the power five coaches like the West. And I'm curious because they had Pat Fitzgerald at number nine above James Franklin at number 13. And I think if you'd ask most people, they probably would have flip-flopped those two. James Franklin would be the second best coach in the big 10 ahead of Pat Fitzgerald. I would not. I think Pat Fitzgerald is criminally underrated and so to see him a year ago in this same ranking, he was number 21. So him rising the way that he did after another coach of the year, they won their second Big Ten West crown in three seasons, um, I thought was justified. I think he was criminally, he's been criminally underrated. He's an amazing coach. But Kirk Ferentz is there at Iowa. Paul Chris is there at Wisconsin. You've got PJ Fleck at Minnesota. People love to hate him here in Nebraska. I think he's a good coach. <laughs> Lots of people love to hate him here in Nebraska. I think he's a good coach. Um it's just like you said, it, it is, it is a grind week in and week out. And I think that this thing in particular, as it relates to Nebraska really highlighted just the thing that frost walked into. I mean, and I don't say that to make excuses for a 12 and 20 record. Cause I have said this time after time, we've talked about this a ton. I've said this in a bunch of different places, their record commensurate to their talent level has not been where it needs to be. Like they've lost games they should not have lost. Um, but I can say that while also saying that Frost didn't walk into a great situation. And he didn't walk into an easy league. There is there. there I, and like I included in the piece, I was like, what would have happened if two different hypotheticals, if instead of taking over the Nebraska job, Frost took over the Maryland job and had gone 12 and 20 in his first three seasons. But like, hung with Ohio state his first year and then had a couple of nice promising moments throughout the next couple of years. Like, would it still be viewed the same way? I don't know. What if, what if you just took Nebraska out of the West and swapped them with Maryland and Nebraska's playing in the East, like would Frost's 12 and 20 record be looked at as better than what it is in the West. There's this narrative of the West that because it was Scott Frost. And because it was Nebraska, he should have just been able to walk into the conference and then run things after a year or two. And that just isn't the case because it, I mean, Iowa is not pulling tremendous talent on the recruiting trail. Neither is Northwestern, neither is Wisconsin really, but those coaches are among the best in the country. Period. Yes. Yes. And I think that the other thing that kind of stands out to me is you, as you think through these teams in the West, um, and these coaches in the West, like so, with Pat Pat, Pat Fitzgerald in Northwestern, Kirk Ferentz in Iowa, Paul Chris um, as well. Those three, it's just a remarkable level of consistency yeah. in what they do, right? And so, even though, and they all have they have that in common. They all are tremendous talent developers, mm -hmm. and ergo, they're also very good evaluators on the recruiting trail. You mentioned that they don't get like a tremendous level of talent like Wisconsin is raising their profile a little bit. And I think that that's like tremendously terrifying for teams around the country. If Wisconsin ever really starts to um, 
recruit like high level skill players. Um, we'll see how it goes, but they're starting to get there. And so they've been very good at knowing who they are and then executing on a weekly basis and game planning very well. Right. And so all of those coaches make it to where there is no, first of all, there's no off week, as I kind of mentioned, but yeah. when you're playing in this league, but also it's not only is there no off week, you don't get to have a huge margin for error. Right. And so what's the other thing that we always talk about when Nebraska plays Northwestern or Iowa or Wisconsin, and it start, it's this way too with Minnesota because they've been really good um, here recently is that, you, they can't make mistakes. Nebraska cannot make the amount of mistakes that they make and expect to beat these teams. And I think that that all goes back to coaching. Like it goes back to something that these schools have had in place for a long time. And I think that you're right too about the idea that Frost would just come into the lowly Big Ten West mm-hmm. and just run things right away. Not with, And I don't know that I, I don't want to say that he thought this necessarily, but I do think that he was very, he and his staff were very confident about what they would be able to come in and do in the Big Ten West until you sit back and realize that, oh yeah, Pat Fitzgerald is probably one of the best 10 coaches in America. And he probably was that before he was rated as, you know, yeah. nine in this poll. Yep. Kirk Ferentz has been remarkably consistent over there at Iowa and Wisconsin has been Wisconsin since Barry Alvarez, right? Aside from that little blip with Gary Anderson, right? And so things are very tough in this league and they're very tough in this division. And I think because of, what we saw on this poll with the coaching, like the coaching is just so good. And that's before you get to the, what comes after that is that so many of these programs we're talking about also have made huge investments in their assistant coaching pool too. So it's not just the fact that these head coaches are really good. It's that all of them have like high paid coordinators as well that could be going on to do other things too. Like it's just a really high level of coaching in this league. Yeah. A couple notes off of things that you said, what on talent for one Northwestern hasn't had a recruiting class ranked inside the top uh, 40. They haven't had a recruiting class ranked higher than 47th nationally in two decades. The last time that's worse than I would have thought (laughs) the last time they had a top 25 or a top 30 recruiting class by two, four sevens rankings was 2001 when their class ranked 26th from 2001 to today they have not had a recruiting class that has ranked higher than 47th and they have had 11 draft selections since the 2015 NFL draft, including two first rounders last year. So like we know what Wisconsin does with the NFL and what Iowa does with the NFL and things like that. Um, So just from a developmental standpoint, this is both the big 10 West and just the big 10 overall. One of the, 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 the best coached leagues in the country. And it, it's, I don't think that's debatable. I think it's up there right next to neck and neck with the sec. And I don't think that that's particularly debatable. Um, the other thing, I guess we can talk about this now. Uh, Shiano at 34. I like Shiano. It seems a little high for me. Yeah. It's a little high for me. Brett Bielema at 42 above Scott Frost at 47, I thought was wrong. I I would have had Frost a little bit higher just because I think, you know, like a lot of people didn't like his play calling last year. A lot of people thought he got outcoached a bunch last year. He got outcoached a couple of times, but um, 
a lot of people are out on Scott Frost. A lot of people are out on Scott Frost. And 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 in a lot of instances, they have justifiable reasons for being out on Scott Frost. He, he hasn't lived up to expectations. He hasn't lived up to billing. They have had plenty of talent and they have not won games that they should have won. All that is true. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. They so have, you don't you don't think that people should be out on Frost? Like I'm reading your body language no. here, um, and there's two coaches actually on this list that ha- that it seems like people are out on, and because Jeff Brom is the other one. Like remember the the star that he was becoming a couple of years ago, um, and then you look up and his record has not been very good over the last couple of years either. Um, but to stick with Frost, like you, I, well, and funny, you funny enough, patience. Funny enough, it's the same reason with both of those coaches. What has doomed them? Quarterback play. Yeah. If, if you just zoom out, because we are we're so invested into the Nebraska football scene that we're looking at all of the minutiae around the quarterback play. And when Mario Verduzco says they're just a cog in the wheel of success, we agree with him and we look at the other stuff and we see the other stuff because we're looking that closely with a magnifying glass. When you zoom out and just look at these programs from a 50,000 foot view or whatever, and you look at Jeff Brom at Purdue and you look at Scott Frost at Nebraska, like uh, Jeff Brom has the Karloftis kid who might be a first round draft pick next year on defense. He's got that kind of a dude on his defensive line. He had Rondell Moore. He's got David Bell quarterback play has hurt him. He just hasn't had the quarterback play that they needed. And then you look at Scott Frost and you look at Wanda Robinson. They had an awesome defense last year. The defense is getting better and the quarterback hasn't, hasn't performed up to snuff. And so, you know, that that's why I would say, because we are so close to it and because we see all of the other kind of inner workings of it, that's why I would say, let's, let's see this year. Let's see this year. Because the other thing too, is when you're in the big 10 West, we've, we've already gone through the credentials. It's a tough league to play in. It's a tough league to coach in when you're in the big 10 West and then your crossover games every year are Ohio state and Penn state and Michigan, you're, you've been done no favors. Now I'm the schedule guy that hates complaining about oh the schedule. I'm, so I like, hate the schedule. I hate complaining about the schedule. I will, I will, but, but when your crossover games are Ohio state every year in Michigan, like that, that's, that's worth mentioning <laughs> when you're in as, as tough a division as the big 10 West is. Yeah. I do think that that, I think, I think that it's worth mentioning. And I did, I was kind of looking at that. Um, and I, like I just flat out hate the schedule talk. I really do. I think that that it shifts and changes depending on how good the team that you're talking about is. Like, I just feel like I can't imagine that Wisconsin like sits around like so much talking about the schedule. Like I just, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't because they win games because, because they're not looking at their schedule and seeing Illinois on the road on August 28th to open the season and saying, that's a tough game. There are, there are ways where that becomes a tough game. They're not looking at it like that because they're beating Illinois because, well, I guess they didn't with Charlie or with, uh, with Lovey Smith. Um, but you know what I mean? Like games yeah. like that, like you look at Nebraska's schedule and say, well, how many gettable games are on their schedule? Two or three. That's where Nebraska's at. Like Wisconsin is not at that place. The better teams don't look at their schedule and say, man, this is all tough because the only tough games for them are the Ohio States and the Penn States and the Michigan. They don't worry about having to play Rutgers in December and potentially going down 21 to seven. Like those aren't things that they worry about. And so from that standpoint, yeah, schedule talk is dumb. And when Nebraska gets to a place where Nebraska is really good, 
then the schedule talk will die down. But like, but sorry for interrupting you. I had to go on my tangent. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Um, it's good. I, I feel like we're on the same page on the schedule thing. Uh, so I'm always here for your side tangents uh, about hating the schedule. Um, so I'm good with it. I would clap for you if it wouldn't, you know, sound weird <laughs> in people's ears. Um, now, every week we end the show with, with my favorite segment of the week uh, called Put Them On Blast, where we basically put someone on blast for something that they did or said. Put them on blast. I'm going to throw you guys a curveball this week. I don't think I've ever allowed the guest to actually go first. I am very interested to hear what Derek has to say. So I am going to let Derek have the floor uh, to go first and put them on blast. Okay. How much time do people normally take for these things? Because I wrote, <laughs> I wrote my put them on blast so that I don't forget stuff. Uh, it's 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 varied. It's it's depend on, on who it is. But you have the floor. You right. you do what you need to do. I just I just want to I want to talk about the Clippers. Okay. So when they lost Game Two, I was I was obviously giddy. We were talking in our Slack channel. I was laughing. I stopped a little bit later and thought to myself, why am I enjoying this so much? Why am I enjoying them losing so much? There's the obvious, I'm a Thunder fan. Them blowing up is good for my team's future. Luca also might be my favorite player in the NBA right now. So I'm actively rooting for him and Dallas, which I, by the way, I don't think is the same as rooting for the Clippers to fail. But this team is so hated this Clippers team in a, in a, in a different kind of way from, from other like villain teams in the NBA over recent years, everyone loves right now to hate on this Clippers team. And like people hated the, the Kevin Durant golden state warriors, but it was also, there was also like internal, like wrestling with yourself. If you hated on them, because it's just really hard to hate on Steph and clay but also really easy to hate on Draymond. So there were like in, internal struggles about how you feel about them, unless you were a Thunder fan. Um, that team was also awesome before Kevin Durant. So you just expected them to continue to be awesome. So it wasn't like they made this massive leap in talent. Um, and I don't think that they're comparable to the Heatles because the difference is that the, the Heat with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, like those dudes – they accepted the villain role. They were straight up villains in the NBA, but they backed it up. And they'd also won a title like within a decade of that team forming. Um, this Clipper team, like everyone has different reasons to hate them. Every fan base hates them for a different reason. And I don't think I've ever seen an actual Clipper fan before. I don't think I've ever seen one in public before. And like when Tottenham Hotspur loses... Like I go to Spurs mentions on Twitter, like the main uh, brand account on Twitter. And I'm just like kind of looking through the mentions and commiserating with fellow Spurs fans, because that's what it is. It's Spurs fans being like, why did you do this to us again? Why did you do this to us again? It's and you'll get like the occasional like rival teams fans in there that are, um, you know, crap talking or trash talking or whatever it might be. But you also see a good percentage of actual Spurs fans. And I see this with other team brand accounts too. I went to the Clippers Twitter account just because I was curious to look at their, their tweet after the game two loss. There were no Clippers fans being like, why are you doing this to us again? I don't see Clippers fans on Twitter. I don't, I don't see them in public. So that's part of it. When this team was formed, they 
they had themselves a coronation. And it when LeBron said not one, not two, not three in Miami, you could totally see them doing exactly what they said they were going to do. That was part of why they were villainized was because everybody expected them to win. Not one, not two, not three. You looked at the talent and said, they're going to win a bunch of titles. It's over for the next couple of years. I never bought for a second that this Clipper team was suddenly the best team in the NBA. I did not buy the narrative that some analysts were spinning, that they had the best roster in the league. Um, I don't know how anyone could have looked at the two different LA teams and said, I'll take the PG Kawhi duo over the LeBron Anthony Davis duo. I think what we have learned now is that all the hubbub about Kawhi being the best player in the NBA after that Toronto title was, was overblown. Um, but the Clippers believed that they were suddenly the best team in the NBA and they behaved as such before they won anything. And not only that, but they were just so brazenly anti-Laker that it was nauseating. Um, the slogans were gross. L-A-R way, driven, not given, streetlights over spotlights, we over me. These were all legitimate marketing slogans that that, that, that team came up with before they'd won anything. So let's not ignore the fact that the irony of the Clippers claiming to be LA's working class team, the hard work over trust fund boys in relation to the Lakers, while their fancy new arena in Inglewood, which is a largely black and Latino part of Los Angeles, construction of that arena is inspiring very legitimate fears of gentrification. So that's one. Let's also not ignore that the Clippers thought that they could just turn Laker fans who'd been Laker fans for decades with a few fancy slogans, some money and a new paint job. I think the thing that bugged me so much about the Clippers is the sort of like balmerization of them. He skipped a bunch of steps, but because he has more money than God, he thought that that, that they could just do it like that. Again, it's not very working class of them. And then when it didn't work after the first year, Paul George went out and said that that wasn't a championship or bust season. And then they shipped out all the parts that remained that actually made them what they claimed to be. So like the pre-Kawhi Clippers were a damn good team. They were easy to root for and they actually worked hard. Like so SGA, Gallinari, Lou Will, Trez, Landry Shamit, those dudes were an eight seed that pushed Golden State when they had no business doing that in the playoffs. And all of them are gone. The only one that remains is Patrick Beverly, who's probably the fourth or fifth worst guard on their roster. He shouldn't play. Pat Bev tricked y'all. Um, down to the coach. They were the problem. They were deemed the problem. Doc didn't know how to manage the town in the locker room. The old regime couldn't get on board with how the new regime operated. And maybe that's because the new regime isn't about the stuff that actually matters. Because the problems that they had a year ago are still relevant. Like they take games off. They think they can just roll out the ball and be unstoppable. They took the regular season for granted again. I said it then. And I say it again. Now, if you think you can jumpstart a championship run by tanking your last two games of the regular season away to the two worst teams in basketball by far, all so that you can avoid a team early that you're eventually going to have to beat at some point, you're either arrogant or you're unbelievably stupid. And in the Clippers case, I think they're both because Luca hit a game winner on them a season ago. He had multiple 40 point games in the playoffs and they looked at him and said, yeah, we want that dude. I just don't understand. I don't understand the Clippers and as a basket. So like remove the thunder fan part of me as a, as just a basketball fan in general, they make me sad 
because we could have legitimately had a great Laker Clipper rivalry, but this team very well could be done because despite Paul George claiming that there's no pressure that last season wasn't a championship or bust. He said after they lost the second game at home, they fell down 0-2 at home to the Dallas Mavericks. And he said that there's no level of concern. These guys have been on the clock the whole time. Like Kawhi left the Spurs, which was arguably the best organization in basketball with the best coach in basketball at that time because he just wanted to. And then he went and won a title in Toronto and immediately left because he just wanted to. And then he signed a three-year deal in LA with an opt-out after the second season. That's this offseason, bro. You've been you've been on the clock the whole time. So I guess this is directed at Paul George. And like maybe Kawhi is tired of listening to Paul George talk and call himself playoff P and then hit the side of the backboard in the playoffs. Like I don't I, I've seen I mean, he was in Oklahoma City. He was a legitimate MVP candidate two, three seasons ago, whatever his last year in OKC was. Like I've seen him look absolutely unstoppable. And then I've also seen Paul George look god awful. I can't think of another superstar with greater variance in his game. And he was paired with Kawhi, who isn't a locker room leader and isn't a consistently great basketball player. That, I mean, this thing has been problematic from the start. Um, also, this is a little hot takey. The team that Kawhi left in Toronto was a better team than the one that he made in Los Angeles. And Fred Van Vliet is a better player and a more capable number two than Paul George. And this team, this Clipper team has red face denied that every single step of the way. So talked a big game about being the new power in Los Angeles before they ever actually won anything. So like forget just beating the Lakers in a playoff series. They haven't even made a conference finals yet as an organization. And then Patrick Beverly told Steph Curry that the next five years belong to the Clippers. They have at every single turn carried themselves like a super team without the credentials or the results to back that up. That is why I am reveling in them losing and why Paul George is nuts, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And for all of that, all of those Clippers have to go on blast. I'm going to, there you go. I had to clap for you a little bit. I can't, I mean, I can't top that. There was so much within that, that, we could do an entire additional episode on that. But uh-huh. one thing that I want to hit on, and we may have to, um, if and when they do get eliminated, especially if it's in the first round, because that's going to set off all sorts of things. And I think that people forget that Kawhi Leonard can leave this team after yeah. this year. And it's going to be a real storyline this offseason. But I think uh, the one thing that I want to go to here, what you said, is – they, want, they presented themselves as the alternate to the Lakers or the new kids on the block. We were going to take over from the Lakers and for a variety of reasons, that was always foolish. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of, you know what, part of what makes the Lakers the Lakers and the Clippers never seem to get this, that being on the clock and that urgency is actually always there with the Lakers. Yeah. Even when the Lakers were bad, that's part of the reason why there was so much fuel of like, think of all the turmoil that happened within the Lakers organization. Part of that was because they all realized that as the Lakers, we've got to win. That mm-hmm. has to be what we do, right? Mm-hmm. And at the core of it, we have to do that. And so when we got LeBron James, then that pressure ramped up even more. He gets hurt. They missed the playoffs. And okay, we got to figure out <laughs> where to go from here. Anthony Davis, we get him. But when Anthony Davis got there, Anthony Davis did not come to the Lakers and say, yeah, it's not championship or bust. 
Like that was never something that he would have said. He came in and said the same thing that LeBron said, which was we've got to come in here and win championships. Like this is what we were brought here to do. This is what this franchise and this fan base expects. And so part of it is that the Clippers have never had that success. So maybe they don't necessarily expect that. But on the same token, they were talking as if they should just be given that. Mm -hmm. And so it was always kind of there's always this weird mental thing, I think, with this Clippers franchise where they you're 100 percent right. that They carry themselves as if they have already been this dynasty and they've already done all of these things. And Kawhi has had a great career and has done a lot. But the rest of them, not so much. Right. And so and, and even with that, Kawhi is just such a unique individual because, like you said, he's not really a locker room presence. He just kind of wants to show up and do his thing. And then not, and that also creates problems because you had too many guys on that team that could fill that vacuum that should not have necessarily filled that vacuum. Right. And so it, it's just been a mess. I look forward to hopefully them bowing out early here in the playoffs um, and we'll see how it goes. So I guess technically I just kind of put them on blast too, but it works um, because the, there's a lot going on there. Them trading uh, Lou will for, Rajon Rondo like everybody's like oh they're trading for playoff Rondo they're trading for the hope of playoff Rondo well they were also trading for somebody who could actually be a respected voice in the locker room yeah that's they needed thing. that yeah. well but they did but that's a giant red flag for a championship they're for a team that that wants to win a championship if your two best players aren't that guy that's a problem you're like one of your two two or three best players has to be that guy it can't be Rondo who's sitting on the bench like he 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 kind of filled a little bit of that role for the Lakers, but also LeBron James is there. So yeah. like And um, LeBron James was there empowering Anthony Davis to do the same too. Yeah. Right. And and essentially like they're grooming him to be the guy at some point. Like there's also a clearly established pecking order um that goes along with that too. And I think that the distinction you made between the Lakers always feeling the pressure of that clock and the Clippers very clearly just wanting to shrug off any notion that there is a clock. I think that that distinction between the two is why the Lakers are winning and the Clippers are losing. And I think that distinction between the two uh, was, was just perfectly illustrated on game two night of game two, when the Lakers were winning on TNT national TV and the Clippers were losing relegated to the NBA TV spot that only certain people get at the same time. Perfect. That, I mean, that is the perfect way to describe it and the perfect place to leave this episode of the pod. Subscribe to the podcast everywhere you can listen to them. Rate us and leave us a five-star review. If you only leave four, I am inclined to think you're a hater and nobody wants that. Uh, make sure you're checking out the other podcasts on the Hill Varsity Network. The Mind Your Own Podcast, Varsity Club with Derek Peterson, uh, Nebraska Preps Post Game Show, and the Hill Varsity Radio Show. Uh, also, making sure you guys make sure you guys are checking out the Hill Varsity YouTube page where I do those recruiting questions of the week each week with Aaron. Um, you can also get after us on Twitter at Greg Smith HV and at Dr. Petey HV. Um, what a, what a good episode. I just always feel good after putting the Clippers on blast. Uh, I'm just smiling <laughs> over here. You can email the show uh, at straightupbreakdownofhailvarsity.com. I will catch you guys next week. A Media Production.